I'm Jane Jackson. And I'm Colin Denny. And you're listening to A Better Workplace from Wistia. Hey, Colin. What's up, Jane? Uh, I, I can already tell by the look on your face <laughs> that you, you have something spicy for us today. I, I don't know if I would use that term to describe today's topic, but I think you'll find this one interesting. I'm guessing that you have Facebook or Twitter. Is that is that fair to say? Yes, indeed. Probably not uncommon for you to come across, say, a provocative Facebook post every now and then that has dozens or hundreds of comments and replies. Yes, almost almost exclusively when we're talking politics or COVID vaccinations or race relations, etc. Is it safe to say that many kinds of those comments are somewhat unpleasant to read? Just just a just a dash of unpleasant. Uh yes, I would I would say that's putting it kindly. So I've seen my fair share of those as well. I actually ended up deleting my Facebook and I don't check Twitter. But there's a social media platform that, for the most part, has been somewhat immune from this kind of vitriol that you see on Facebook and Twitter, and that's LinkedIn. It's not uncommon for me to spend some time scrolling through my LinkedIn feed, reading comments, clicking on articles, and really digging into sometimes even inspiring posts or discussions that I feel really invested in. Yeah, I'd agree with that. I don't I don't typically see the kind of pedantic posts or, you know, the crazy memes I often come across on Facebook or Twitter. So here's the deal. Our producer, Ron, shared a recent LinkedIn post that was bananas. If he didn't tell me, I'd swear it was from Facebook. It was for one of those, um, those LinkedIn training courses. And this one happened to be about microaggressions. Work performance and team dynamics. According to a study by SurveyMonkey and Fortune, 26% of Americans have admitted to experiencing a microaggression at work, 36% have admitted to witnessing one, and 22% are just unsure. So what does that mean? Microaggressions are more common than we may think, but equally as confusing. And addressing microaggressions requires a multifaceted approach. That clip is from the short promo video for the series, and the trainer in the video is Tony Howard Lowe, a DEI consultant who worked with Fortune 1000 companies training managers on topics like this. So now that you've heard the clip, Colin, how many replies and comments would you expect to see on a typical LinkedIn promo video like this? Jane, you you always want to put me on the spot with a test. I have been clear since episode two, uh, <laughs> that, that I do not like tests, but, um, I don't know. A few, a few dozen seems like quite a bit. This one has a little bit more than that. Like, uh, 200 nope, or so. More. Okay. 500. You're, you're not even getting warm yet. Okay. Uh, what are you going to say? A thousand? Nope. All right. I give up. How many? There are over 2000 comments on this thread over a three and a half month period. <laughs> Holy shit, are you, are you serious? Because like, I have a feeling those aren't all people who want to learn about microaggressions. You, you would be really correct in that feeling. So Ron did some light research on this thread, and back when it was only 600 comments, he actually took the time and went through them all and did a little review. At the time, the overwhelming number of comments were indeed positive. He calculated roughly about 10% were some form of negative reply or response. He took the liberty of copying and pasting all of the negative reviews. Do you care to hear some of them? I, I am on the edge of my seat. So in no particular order, here were some of the negative comments. What a load of contrived make-believe. More divisive rhetoric designed to malign one group of workers over another. What a pile of BS. So two out of 10 people had microaggressions at work. 
We should really fix this terrible problem, mm. LOL. Mm. Guess what? I've been the target of microaggressions by blacks. Stop being such snowflakes and toughen your skin. Everyone, stop looking to be offended. When did the workplace become the therapy zone for personal growth situations? And this is why China is dominating us. Good grief. China. <laughs> good, good grief is right. That is, that is quite an interesting set of responses, and it, uh, it seems pretty clear that most of these people don't really have a grasp of what microaggressions actually are. So this is interesting. Scrolling through the negative LinkedIn comments, it's pretty clear. You can tell from the profile pictures that these negative comments are all coming from white people, and the majority of them are also coming from men. Yeah, so essentially a group of people that happen to be in not just a major demographic, the major demographic were the ones that seem to have an issue with the training. To me, that's unfortunate because theoretically that's a group that would benefit the most from understanding what uh, microaggressions actually are and what they're about. Perhaps if the LinkedIn algorithm gods are in our favor, these people will hear this episode and come away with a different mindset because we have on the show the trainer herself to walk us through what microaggressions are all about. All right, let's let's do this. So before we start into this discussion about microaggressions, we wanted you to hear from some people who have been on the receiving end of microaggressions. And for that, we reached out to Dr. Yolanda Flores-Neiman, a researcher and professor of psychology at the University of North Texas. And she was the producer of a video about microaggressions in the classroom. And although she wasn't able to be a guest on the show, she did allow us to play a clip from her video. Think about a time when someone said something about some aspect of your identity that made you feel insulted or slighted, even if they didn't intend it you probably experienced a microaggression. A microaggression is something that someone says to someone else without knowing that it may be offensive. It hurts, so that's how I know it's a microaggression because it feels disrespectful. And it's not like outright racism, but it's something that is, it is like almost unconscious in the way that you view people. Most microaggressions are subtle and indirect, but they occur frequently in the daily interactions of members of historically underrepresented groups. And most often, people who commit microaggressions think of themselves as well-intentioned, non-racist, non-sexist people. They do not realize that the underlying messages communicated by their actions or comments are hurtful to other people. One of my friends asked if my parents had their papers. I had a science teacher, a physics teacher, and he told me that I was the smartest black girl in his class. Uh, I've been asked um, if I understood what they were talking about, or like, do you, like, um, do you need any translation and stuff just based on my name? I'm like, you know, I'm not the spokesperson for the whole black community, you know, but that's a microaggression I do experience a lot. Like, they want the black perspective, and I'm usually the only black girl in the class. So it's like, okay, what, what's your take on What I find interesting about this clip is that although these are the experiences of undergraduates, the stories are not that much different than what adults in the workplace deal with. Furthermore, it underscores the point that these experiences go all the way back to people's years in college. That means for some people in the workplace, they've dealt with various forms of microaggressions, both at school and at work, for 10, 15, maybe even 20 plus years. And when you think about that amount of time, and then you pair that with the kind of responses to the training we addressed earlier, it becomes clear why training like this can be so necessary. Let's learn more about the training as we speak with Tony Howard Lowe, an 18-plus-year veteran of HR-related issues, a DEI coach and consultant, and founder of The Corporate Tea, an online resource of training and inspiration. Why don't we jump right into the beginning? What is a microaggression? How do you define that? Microaggressions are really those like kind of 
subtle everyday exchanges that send like denigrating messages to marginalized groups. They're sort of insidious and things that we wouldn't necessarily think are, they're more covert racism is the best way to describe it. And oftentimes people don't even always know that it's happening to them based on how microaggressions sort of condition you to feel. Can you talk a little bit more about kind of the insidious below the surface nature and, and what that looks like? Yeah. So there there are really three types that, I mean, there are many types at this point, microaggressions have taken off. So I'm hearing all kinds of micro concessions. It's just getting out of control. But there are three primary um, types of microaggressions that I can share with you that might resonate with most people. One is uh, kind of micro assaults. Micro assaults are a little bit more overt, but not really, right? So if you see someone, for example, with a swastika tattooed on their arm or someone wearing a now red Make America Great Again hat or a Confederate flag, or there are many things that might, without you actually having to say that you align to a certain ideology that might send a denigrating message to a marginalized group that they are not welcome, they are not safe. Right. And so that is a micro assault. It's a lot more blatant. Right. Micro insults are sort of being surprised that like someone who you might perceive as English, not necessarily being their first language as speaking well. And so making a comment about that and then micro invalidations, for example, like racism doesn't really exist or I don't see color, really trying to minimize the experience, the lived experiences of marginalized groups and really forcing them to align to the dominant culture perspective. That's kind of three ways that it shows up, but there are many ways. And if you, you, you could go down a rabbit hole of examples, but to me, those are the most common themes within the work and the, the framework of microaggressions. You work pretty frequently with businesses, and I, I think there are folks in privileged classes for whom they're not thinking about this and it's not registering or they're not able to see some of these. Do you have some examples that you use in your training to kind of help illustrate what people may be seeing in the workplace and not necessarily registering that these are aggressive acts towards folks? This isn't radical stuff here, although if you read the comments, sometimes people act like that it is. Really, this is about how do we decenter the dominant culture, right? And that they are the standard for everything, right? Things as simple, you see things like the Crown Act happening right now around hair. I don't know how many years I spent in corporate America pressing my hair straight, right? Because it was Eurocentric and it was the standard and it was the standard of professionalism. And in fact, I had shared with a group recently that years ago, I had a, a high level leader tell me, you know, we had this big meeting in front of the board and he was like, you know, I really like when you wear your hair, you know how you wear it really straight and like kind of that blunt cut. I think sometimes people think because microaggressions are well-intended or you might have a good rapport with a person that is acceptable because they didn't mean to offend but I talk a lot about that impact versus intent. There are many examples of that. In my inbox, so many people were stuck on this idea of giving someone a compliment about you speak so well. And they're like, well, I don't think that that's offensive. Well, here's the thing. If you're an amazing orator like MLK or John Maxwell, yeah, it's not an offensive thing, right? But the question is, how often are we telling white cisgender males that they speak so well unless they are actually excellent speakers? But if I speak just like my peer group, but your perspective is that I shouldn't, right, based on where I either grew up or my nationality, and you're giving me a compliment, and I don't prefer to speak in groups, I don't, I'm not comfortable with doing it, and I don't really speak any differently than my peer group, there lies the difference, right? And so I think we can try to make microaggressions seem subjective and not that big of a deal. But the reality is, if you are someone who is encouraged to be an ally and in involving your thought process in microaggressions, then you will try to decenter yourself in what was said and, and really try to get to how it lands in the impact of, of your words. And I think that's really the most, most important thing. There's two things that you brought up that I think are just fantastic. And to illustrate the point for the listeners, speaking specifically to speaking well and hair, 
These are things that like, if people were curious as to how that, how or why that's offensive, I always try to illustrate the point as if you're telling me that I'm articulate or, or that I, that I speak so well, it's kind of a suggestion that you were expecting opposite <laughs> or, uh, you know, like that, that you're, you're watching a black man or a black woman, whatever it may be speak. And you're saying, Oh, this is counter to what I expected. And that w- just would not be the case in most examples. If you're just talking about your average white colleague and then specific to the hair, I feel like this has kind of been something that has come up really recently with like, it's kind of the culture now where a lot of folks are letting their hair, like, especially like the NBA, they're kind of like the trendsetters. Right. And you see, you see all these guys like with, you know, their, their hair's out now and they're, mm-hmm. and they're just letting it go. Cornrows are coming back and everything. And then you hear things where people are talking about like, oh, like Joel Embiid, for example, like, you know, he wears his hair like, well, oh, his hair is kind of kind of wild. I don't know what's going on with his hair. And it's like, well, that's that's how it grows. You know, it's like th- this is natural hair. And so it's kind of like the, the microaggression tucked in there is that like, yeah, you're making a comment on something because whether it's different than what you expect or, you know, whatever your personal standard is, or like, you know, what is considered acceptable and that rule only applies to people of color. Yeah. And if the dominant culture does something similar, it's trendy or kind of catchy and like, oh, you know, that's so cool. And then, but perceived, you know, like it's not professional with the non-dominant culture. So you see a lot of that. And even just like hetero norms too, right? I mean, Mm -hmm. I don't want to make it just where microaggressions present. This is about dominant and non-dominant standards, right? So even like using hetero language when you show up to meetings or your expectations for certain marginalized communities like LGBTQ community, when you're talking about assuming someone has a wife or assuming someone, you know, not using inclusive language. I think there are many ways that we ostracize and we set a standard for what we believe is the right thing or the standard. And that is really what microaggressions is about, is about forcing people to have this really deep conversation with themselves about how they can do better in making everyone feel included and and safe. This is a little bit of a tangent, but kind of building on that. I think as a gay woman, when you're sharing, when I'm sharing that I'm married, sometimes you'll get kind of that, oh, uh, well done <laughs> sort of thing that I would, you know, is right. like, I mean, <laughs> it's not, I didn't get a trophy for it. It's just like a normal thing in your yeah. life. And uh, yeah, it does. It is interesting. And then certainly as a woman sometimes when you are presenting your ideas and getting overly complimented you're I mean it's great but you know that it's because the expectation is oh wow I didn't think you could I didn't think you could do that or I didn't think you could debate like that or something of that nature and it is interesting there's obviously the broader impact of microaggressions to someone in their day-to-day life and it's cumulative and it's traumatic and it's challenging. I'm curious if there are work-specific impacts of kind of microaggressions and the cumulative nature of them that people in the audience should be aware of. Yeah, I mean, I think Coquel and Pew Research Study, there's some really great studies where you can see they have one on state of Black women in the workplace. Pew Research Study has done specifically some research on microaggressions. And I think you can dig in to see those things. But I think the overarching thing is really around performance is one, right? You see there's hard research stats on decreasing in performance in non-inclusive workplaces, particularly those that have a high propensity for microaggressions. The other thing is that you see a huge exit of marginalized groups to traditional corporate roles. And that's happening because in a global workforce where the landscape is changing, and as you see millennials rising to leadership, and gig economy becoming big and and the lack of security in corporate structures, I don't have to choose a corporate company the way that my grandparents had to, right? Where that was the only way you were going to get the gold watch and you had to sit there for 30 years. And there was in some ways a benefit. Now I go where I'm celebrated, not where I'm tolerated, 
right? I have that ability in a workforce that's far more global than I did 20, 30, 40 years ago. And so the outcomes of businesses not equipping their leaders to be more inclusive and not challenging courageous conversations is their inability to perform and to be innovative in the future, right? Because people don't have to tolerate these sorts of uh, experiences anymore in the workplace. Focusing in a little bit on the current climate, there's kind of an underlying or maybe not so underlying tone about cancel culture in a, in a PC state and people being overly sensitive and whatever it may be when we're talking about microaggressions and relationships in the workplace. So I'm wondering if you could speak to in your professional journey, if you've ever come across this in your trainings, or if this has been something that you've that you've had to tackle and just kind of the tools involved in, in handling that and, and how should companies be thinking about that? I think that, and I share this over and over again in the microaggressions course, that the person who is being offended has to make sure that they have the right capacity because and the right skills to bring people along. And it's also not their responsibility. But in the in the circumstance where I personally am training, I lead from, and especially with what is happening in the world, not that these things are new, but the awakening to dominant culture that these things are happening. It is really a journey of decentering the the dominant culture, right? Kind of decolonizing is what I like to say. Mm -hmm. And really taking away the dissonance that the dominant culture tries to create by saying things like, I'm not racist, I have a Black friend, or insert any other ethnic group or uh, marginalized community friend, and I'm an ally because of this, or my daddy was colorblind, like all those things, right? And instead saying, when you think about systemic racism, and and microaggressions is really just a byproduct or a symptom of, of that, it is a system, None of us necessarily today created it. We can own that, right? But all of us, in in some respect, are participating in it. And how are we participating, right? The journey for me is always to get people to figure out how are they participating to decenter themselves. And and here's the thing, this isn't radical work, but if you're unwilling to decenter yourselves and you see that in the comments, Right. If you're unwilling to decenter yourself and you're like, well, that's not what I meant. If I say something nice, you should just take it because because that is the dominant culture in action. Right. That is racism trying to maintain itself. Right. If that is the case, then you're not going to evolve. Right. And there are moments where I know that people are not going to evolve. But in, in the journey of this work, it is literally like awareness, awakening, actioning. Most people are not going to get to actioning, but awareness is key. So if I can get you to a point where you understand your words, right? And even in scenarios where someone raised their hand and be like, well, I just think we're too sensitive of a culture. I'm always getting feedback. I say, okay, walk me through some of the things that you've said and what you got feedback on, right? And then I'll ask the room, like, has anyone else got similar feedback? And most of the time, no one else has gotten a similar feedback. So this is really about this person, right? Mm -hmm. And then we kind of walk through examples of how that might be communicating another message. And is that the intent you intended? Sometimes that's yes, sometimes that's no. And if it's a yes, then then why is that problematic? And and an education on that. If it's a no, then what are you gonna do to change it, right? And so I think that I always assume in doing this work that there is going to be reluctance. There's going to be someone who benefits from being in the dominant culture, has an advantage in being in the dominant culture, and it does not serve them to believe that their dominance is harmful, right? Mm-hmm. And if I understand that at a baseline, I can remove for me personally anger from it and understand that this is a journey and and I'm only going to get you so far. But I kind of, for me, I lead with dialogue, not, not necessarily like sort of a contentious argument and being right. Yeah. I feel like we are acknowledging here that like, we know that it is uncomfortable to be presented with ideas or opinions or flat out statements that contradict what you've previously believed to be true. But I think that's kind of the whole key to unlocking this whole thing, right? Like, 
we we grow up and we navigate the world in whatever environment we're in product of environment whatever you want to call it but that's not an excuse for for ignorance at least that's the way i like to think of it it's it is a journey and it's about learning and and understanding that as you navigate this life that there are going to be times that everything you've thought to be true to that point might not be and so i th- i just think that that's a that's a great call out and it's not about some flip of the switch where you are presented with this information and then you 180 your entire stance. Yeah. No. It's about that awareness that you're speaking to and and maybe, you know, taking whatever you've just heard or the feedback you've received or the book you read, movie you watched, whatever it is, and just helping you shepherd a different way of thinking, I guess, in, you know, just kind of looking at things critically and differently and then you know, contrasting that with with the beliefs that you currently hold and say to yourself, I might have been wrong about that. And, th- and there's no shame in that either. Yeah. And here's the other thing, too. I think what comes up for me as a trainer in this work is also the fact that it has opened my eyes to how I participate in helping the dominant culture maintain the standard. Right. So. When I press my hair straight to meet Eurocentric standards, out of pressure, not because I just personally like my hair straight, because it's okay to press your hair straight. (laughs) But when I do that as a means of conformity, I am participating. When I silence myself, I am participating. So one of the things that this has pointed out to me in doing this work is how I have to show up in the world unapologetically in order to force that there is room made for my perspective and lived experiences. Now that is an even deeper reality in doing this work for marginalized groups, right? Because in order to do that, I mean, I had to do a lot of healing myself and the triggers that come up in microaggressions and the things I had to really heal those experiences before I could get to a point where I'm like, okay, I'm drawing the line in the sand, right? I'm not going to conform in this way anymore, right? The fullness of who I am deserves to be allowed to be at this table. And that is a whole nother. So everyone is journeying in this. I don't want you to feel like, you know, when we're having a conversation about microaggressions, that this is just a conversation about the dominant culture, but this is also a conversation about how we all participate. And in some ways, Even in marginalized experiences, if we're both from marginalized communities, there is an advantage position, Mm -hmm. right? You as a Black man, when it comes to perhaps like safety, might have an advantage over me walking down the street, right? Mm -hmm. And so there are many ways that we are all participating and can be an ally. Part of this work, too, is about getting to the root of what this is systemically, and calling it out for what it is, and then in challenging people to unlearn what they've been conditioned to believe, right, about what the standard is, and how we even came to that standard. And I have gotten some of the highest level leaders to admit biases to me that would be shocking. You can't Mm -hmm. do this work unless you create psychological safety for everybody. And I don't think that you can evolve something you can't speak, right? So for someone to tell me like, you know, I realized that I had a bias towards like the Asian community and be able to verbalize that means that we can evolve it, right? Why is that? Where does that come from? What experience did you have, right? And how do you work towards that every day? And I think that's the challenge, right? Part of what is at the root cause of all of this is race relations, particularly in the U.S., And I think many of those topics are contentious, right? You see people pounding the ground and like, this is what it is. But in some ways, we're all all participating. That's sort of my standard on how I evolved is that doesn't mean that I'm invalidating the experiences of marginalized groups. It just means that this is a journey that we all have to evolve on one end of the spectrum. You need to evolve to say, I will not lean in to this dominance, right? That mm-hmm. we have to rebalance. We right. have to rebalance this, recalibrate. And on the other end, it says, I need to be charging myself with how my words land and where that sentiment came from 
every time I open my mouth. And when we all do the work, I think it just gets better. And that's not to be cliche. It's just that is what it is. Mm -hmm. There's a really validating piece in there for me personally about the other side of it, like the the people who these microaggressions are happening to in the journey and the healing there, because I'm 35, like I'm a lot more comfortable now than I was when I was 20, 20 you know, yeah. <laughs> but I think so often these days about all the times, like how many situations in my life I could relive and just do differently in terms of like letting that racially tinged joke go laughing, yeah. laughing with all the other white people when they make a, an off color racist joke to, to assimilate for what, you know, right. and I think to myself, like, why did I do that? Right. You know, I, I would never let that fly now. I'd probably get actually really loud about it, but it's just like, I think about all these circumstances in my life where there was these things happening. And then at the core of like my soul, I knew it was wrong and it bothered me sometimes for like days after. Again, what I love about podcasts and courses is the art of storytelling to help people really sit and resonate with the sum of their experiences. To be clear, my inbox is more filled with people outside of the U.S. Mm. saying they've had these experiences. So this idea of racial tension in the U.S. also resonates Dominant and non-dominant culture, that dynamic exists everywhere. I will say when I set out to do this, I thought it would be much more popular than in the U.S., but that hasn't been the case. And that's telling. For new authors on LinkedIn, typically in the first 60 days, you're lucky to have eight to 10,000 learners. This course has had 116,000 learners in 60 days. And I think it's not like my magic. I think it's just it speaks to the lived experiences of people and the root concerns with the way that we're living as it relates to diversity, equity, and inclusion and the experiences of people. Saying all that to say, this is a tough topic, but again, like I said, it's not radical. It really is just about people getting on board to have these, these tough conversations. I'm curious if you can talk a little bit more about your approach to training and specifically, I'm curious if people in different groups, you go in with different expectations of them. So for example, folks in the dominant culture or folks in leadership, if they should go in with a different mindset, or if it's really just everyone should bring the same thing to the table and the expectations on the other side are similar across the board. I set acknowledgments at the top of every training, but my favorite acknowledgement is like, what is said stays and what is learned goes. And that's the expectation that I set with everyone, right? Because the root of all of this is psychological safety. It is about having a conversation and having the freedom to share your lived experiences without being penalized for it, no matter how hard it is to hear someone else say what they're saying. And microaggressions are tough. So the corporate companies that have reached out to me to talk about this, I commend them because this is not a tough topic. And at the root of this is really a racial equity or systemic oppressive history at the root of this. And that can be tough to have when in a professional environment. And many companies feel like that's not my responsibility. Like we're doing business here. I want people to belong and be treated nice. And, and it's like, those are nice, soft words. But how do people belong and be nice to one another when they bring to the table all of their own individual lived experiences, cultures, and biases? And so leaders, particularly what I prepare them with is how to model the behaviors that you want within your company. For example, if a woman is speaking and someone talks over her or, or any non-dominant culture, you, you make room for that. Tony, I, you know, you, you were speaking uh, and you got cut off. I want to make sure we make room for what you had to say. You model what you want 
and what the standard is. And so a lot of times this is just like a reframing. When something is offensive, it's about giving people the tools to be able to address it in a way that is not necessarily contentious, but is coming from curious so that we can get to a point of your own learning, which I think is far more, it leads to a far better outcome. That said, you will never hear me say to marginalized groups that they shouldn't be emotional, shouldn't be angry. And I say over and over again in the course, you have to have the emotional capacity to address these things. And if you don't, that's okay. That labor shouldn't be put on marginalized groups. So the purpose of of training really is for me to help everyone do the work and to kind of carry the load. Can you speak a little bit more to that? Because it's it's a theme we've heard from from several of our guests and in our own work, kind of thinking about how to build trainings that are helpful to our whole community, but are not an undue weight on those in equity seeking groups. How do you, because it is unbalanced and it is difficult and a a bigger weight to bear for folks who have kind of this cumulative trauma. How do you set those those trainings up to be safe spaces, particularly for the folks in the non-dominant culture. So it is not just their peers learning at the expense of their own safety and mental health. Yeah. Let me tell you, this is probably, I'm so glad you asked that question because this is one of my pet peeves, right? We tend to put the burden of learning and evolving. And even in one-to-one conflicts where there's a comment made to Tony, I'm offended. My leader agrees that wasn't very nice. And then you put, and I give an example of that in the course where the onus is put on me to repair the fracture. And it's like, wait a minute. That's not how I thought this was going to play out. So I think that we're well-intentioned on wanting to have an inclusive environment, but you'll see that sometimes the burden of creating that type of thing is put on marginalized communities. Oftentimes, groups or professionals who don't necessarily actually have the skill um, to help people learn and evolve, they just have a lived experience, which is not necessarily a qualifier, right? And so post George. Floyd last summer, you saw a lot of companies doing like dialogue sessions and I called it like trauma sharing. Here's the thing. If I'm in a a large corporation and the dominant culture executive, you know, male comes to me and says, oh, Tony, I just really like for you to talk about your experience as a black female. Even if I feel uncomfortable, even if I don't want to do it, I'm more likely to be pressured to share because it's a nice thing to do. Even though I'm still processing the weight of my feelings, how I fit in this world, it is such an unfair thing. And you have people who absolutely want to participate. But when they participate, if you don't create an environment of safety, if you don't create an environment of resources, you have a bunch of trauma sharing. And here's the thing. If I come into a room and someone else is sharing, I don't know what's going to come up for me as a trigger. Mm -hmm. And so now I'm in a situation where I'm in a professional environment. I've now shared a lived experience. Someone else has shared a lived experience and emotionally I'm exhausted. I'm depleted. And honestly, not much has changed about the work environment. And I feel open and I'm left to with no resource. And you'll have people like, oh, call our EAP line or, but very few employees are going to take you up on that offer. Right. So I think that there is a way if companies are going to do this, this, there's a responsibility in one, how you train, who you choose to lead trainings, and then what resources you provide for everyone who's participating, because I'm not a big fan of what I call trauma sharing. I'm not a big fan of it for a lot of different reasons. And it's not to say that storytelling is not important. Sharing lived experiences is not important, but it can become what I call the oppression Olympics, right? Mm -hmm. So now I've shared my story and we're isolated on this incident of issues of the police with the Black community And the first thing I do as a dominant culture is try to find in my empathy a scenario where I can relate. So then I get up and I tell a story 
And now the marginalized group feels that here you go. You just overshadow. You didn't listen. You just overshadowed my experience. So now everyone's in competition and there's this tug of war. It's really important that we get to the root cause of what we're trying to solve for. And I think when we do things like that, it's a lot more performative. It sounds good on paper, like, oh, we're having dialogue sessions across the globe. And are we collecting the results? What are people saying? How many companies do these types of things, have conversations about race, have conversations, courageous conversations, and then survey their employees to see how they felt? And what and if they feel like it moved the needle, I would say very, very few, very few, because what we get to do is then check the box on good faith efforts and say we did this thing and we get to sit on stages and say we're doing these things. But inside our companies, the experiences of BIPOC professionals are not evolving. And so there is a huge responsibility to do things the right way to create safe environments and to make sure that the journey is a collective journey for everyone and that it's safe and that you set certain standards. Yeah, I think that's a great call out. It's like ultimately what what purpose is this serving? And then how do we get there? You know, it's it's really like a constantly not evolving is the word I'm looking at, just a constant evaluation. Yeah. I think an understanding that there is no single gesture, conversation or action that you can do that solves for the problem. It's it's truly like because these lived experiences we're talking about are daily, so should be the work. Right. Yeah. You know, it's it's a it's a daily, weekly, monthly, yearly thing. You don't get to just have a conversation about it and say you've done your part. Yeah. And marginalized groups are not monolith, right? So at the end of the day, our expectations and experiences are not going to all be the same either. Right. So one person would prefer this. Another person might prefer that, right? So I think, and that's the same thing with, with microaggressions. One thing might offend one person. Another thing might not offend at all. And that has to do with the journey you're on. There are things that I look at that were said to me five, six years ago that I didn't even realize was a microaggression until I got immersed and more aware in my journey because I was so conditioned to believe that the dominant culture's perspective was right. I didn't even know at that time. So it may take someone five years to get to the point where they're like, you know, and I have more notes in my inbox from people going, man, if I had this two, you know, years ago, a year ago, five years ago, whatever, you gave a voice to my experience in a way that I didn't know what to call it. I didn't know, I knew that this didn't feel right, but I didn't know how to package it in a way to explain it because that's the thing about microaggressions. They're so subtle and so insidious. They kind of get into the crevices of your organization and they show up in a way that's hard to pin down. And so- I think that that's the biggest challenge, honestly. For sure. <laughs> I mean, this is just great conversation to me because I think people tend to think that this is like a new thing and that, they're, you know, it's like woke culture and that all of a sudden everybody is engaging in it. But I think to what you just mentioned, it's more about being able to name something that we've always felt. These are things that we couldn't always speak to previously, but like now it's happening. And, and because there's dialogue around it, people are more comfortable with understanding the things that have happened and able to process it with some help now. And here we are being able to name this thing. And it's like, now we're kind of, you know, that constant evaluation we're talking about. It's like, man, that thing that happened a few years ago, that was, that was racist. And I, th and I think that that is speaking to what white supremacy culture is. Uh, mm -hmm. Not to get too deeply philosophical on that, mm -hmm. but I think a lot of people, when they hear that, they're thinking of like, you know, racism and white supremacy yeah. is like Jim Crow era imagery with. with oh, you know, yeah. Like the reason people say things like I'm not racist because racist is a person in their mind. It is somebody who's going to drag you out your house and burn a cross in your yard. And they're yes. like, I'm so far from that. Right. Yep. Which is why I use the language. How are you participating in mm -hmm. a racist system? 
So if you understand racism as a system, then you can have a a broader conversation, right? right? It just takes a lot of time to evolve. But another point I wanted to make was that this isn't a new concept. The idea of microaggressions was coined by Chester M. Pierce, a psychiatrist in the 1970s. It was kind of revived and resurrected, so to speak, um, by uh, Daryl Wingsu in like the last 15 years or so. But the crazy thing about it is a lot of the research and scenarios are more dated, but still so relevant. (laughs) So it's like, where, if you think about this, what have we even done? If, Mm -hmm. if, if this, this concept was coined in the seventies and we're in 2021, yeah, what are we doing? And so it goes back to that challenge to corporations around how we go about training and relearning and those types of things and wanting to do the real work. And I think a lot of times when we think about DEI work, we definitely want the outcomes of inclusion without the diversity and the equity being complete. And and that's a challenge, I think. Absolutely. This conversation has been super helpful and educating and I have certainly taken some notes over to the side on on things to take away. I'm curious as you think about the work that you're doing and the the training that you're doing, what is the biggest or most important takeaway that you want people to have or the impact that you want to have in doing this work? And that's like a big thing smashed into a little question, but I'm, I'm curious, like, what CEOs in particular should really know about the importance and impact of doing this work? I think that there is now an intersection between, there used to be a time where you could be a large Fortune 500, 100, 200 company and be a strong company and not have to state or take a stand on who you are or closetly be conservative. And now I think there's an intersection between DEI work, corporate social responsibility, sustainability, and social, social justice. As the workforce begins to evolve, the standard is wanting to be aligned to companies that are doing good in the world, or at least are clear about their part. Because you have companies that are on perhaps opposite side, two companies I love to use and pick on, and I probably shouldn't use companies, but I'm gonna use them anyway, are Ben and Jerry's and Chick-fil-A. You can feel however you wanna feel about the companies, but one thing about who they are is about, they're very clear on who they are in the world. Mm -hmm. And, what type of company they're going to be and what the principles are of those companies, what they stand for, what their missions are, whether you like it or not is a personal choice. What I think companies and particularly CEOs are going to have to do is they're going to have to decide if they want to win the war on talent, who they want to be in the world and how they want to align to best align themselves with the type of talent that needs to be in their company. And I think that's the key to all of this. You really can't hide anymore because when your executive leader says the wrong thing on Facebook, best believe your social handle is going to blow up. That didn't exist 10 years ago, Mm -hmm. right? Where they're challenging you. Hey, the bird lady's in Central Park. She's picking on, (laughs) she's, she's picking on people in Central Park. What are you going to do about it? Right. Mm -hmm. They're going to force you to make a statement. And it's important for you to know who you are before you're faced with the crisis Mm -hmm. to decide. And so I think it is about modeling the behavior that you want from the top and continuing as a large corporation to decenter dominant culture and to decide how you're going to rectify that, how you spend your money, how you invest in employees, all those things. So that would be my feedback is that that's the big picture. If you want to win the war on talent, there definitely will be a war because the global economy is changing. I think the only thing that I would leave closing wise 
as it relates to microaggressions and even DEI work is two things. One, to always be asking yourself, how are you participating? And then there are times where even in doing this work, I get it wrong. I get it wrong sometimes. If I'm dealing with, for example, the LGBTQ community and somebody says, well, you got this pronoun wrong or you got this wrong. And I make a commitment to get it right. So if you get it wrong, get it right the next time. Right. That's it. It's just that simple. That would probably be the thing that I want to leave people with is that getting it wrong doesn't have to be the end of it. If you've been getting it wrong for the last 10 years, it's okay to get it right the next time. So I thought that was a really great conversation with Tony. I think it's always really important and valuable to have these discussions with people to gain a lot of context into how nuanced this can be in the various ways that it can come up in our personal and professional interactions. And tying it back into the LinkedIn article that we mentioned, it feels to me that there is so much value that the people who have the most to say about it can gain from hearing these types of conversations, whether it's this podcast or, or elsewhere. My biggest takeaway is that it often is coming from a place of not understanding exactly what microaggressions are and how they affect people. Yeah, there was something that Tony articulated really well that I kind of reflected on since we talked to her, which is this idea of we all participate in these systems. These systems exist regardless of the people in it, they're here. And she gave a couple of examples that had me reflecting on the different ways in which I participate. She gave an example about, I mean, there's certainly the obvious where you are perpetuating if you are in the, you know, dominant group, it's not in the system's best interests or your best interest to recognize that because it mm-hmm. confers a lot of power on you. But she gave the example, and I, I really hadn't thought about it this way, of all of us with kind of the non-dominant parts of our identity also have an opportunity to participate. And I guess an example from my own life is, you know, thinking of the times in which I didn't speak up when I felt I was being treated a certain way because I'm a woman or gay or I just kind of stifled my voice. Those sorts of things also perpetuate the systems. Now, that's not to put all of the weight on folks in non-dominant groups, but it was an interesting way to see how much this is reliant on the status quo and to think about the spectrums under which we all participate in these systems. A hundred percent. And I mean, I'll, I'll put myself on the hot seat here. Not that long ago, I'm talking last weekend, I was placed in an opportunity or or placed in a situation where I had an opportunity to correct something and like communicate how something was making me feel. What I'm speaking specifically to is a conversation about the use of the N-word as it pertains to like rapping along to songs or like quoting rap lyrics, right? By, by folks who are not black. And the discussion was happening between two white friends of mine where they're like, yeah, you know, it's like a thing that I never really felt great about it. Or like, you know, like there's a part, like kind of communicating there was a part of them that they felt wasn't, you know, what maybe I shouldn't. And in my mind, I'm thinking, well, if you think you shouldn't, then you probably shouldn't. But what I found myself doing is kind of thinking to myself, like, is this the time? Is this the place? Do I want to get into this right now? And I think that there's a, there is some validity into like protecting my own energy. Right. But on the other hand, that is me kind of empowering those structures and being complicit in perpetuating them because even though there was a discussion about whether they should say it or not, 
you could interpret that as a microaggression in the way of like, they're having this conversation about whether or not like they can or should use the word with a black person right there. Like Mm -hmm. almost not even like asking me how I felt about it or like, hey, like has it ever bothered you that this has happened? It's like, well, I know you do it and it's never felt great to me. And there was my opportunity to say it, right? But, you know, I think that that is part of the difficulty in navigating these situations is that, you know, like we talk about on this podcast all the time, like discomfort is real. And it's a it's much easier to say that you should intervene and speak up and and let people know how you feel. But it really can be a difficult thing, whether you're confrontational or not. You know, I think um, it, there's always that question in the back of your head is like, is it worth it? And I think that that's an important question to ask right now, because I think any time that this happens, I'm always caught wishing I had said something. And there's really only one way to undo that. And it's to just go for it. Again, easier said than done. But here I am again with another example where I'm thinking to myself, man, I really wish I had said something. One of the things she was talking about was this, you know, unfortunate tendency when we talk about DE&I work to essentially like use the trauma of other folks for the benefit of learning for people in more dominant groups and how that relates to DE&I training. And she shared something that certainly resonated with me, which is, you know, as folks in equity seeking groups are sharing their experiences, there's this natural desire to kind of relate to the experience and to share that you can relate to some elements of what somebody has felt and that that can feel a little bit invalidating and take away space from people who are sharing their lived-in experience. And it was interesting because in the episode, I don't, I don't know if you remember, she was sharing an experience and uh, reflecting back, I, I felt the need to kind of add and share my own experience that I felt kind of tied a little bit towards the emotion of, of her experience. Yeah. And, you know, it made me certainly think about being much more intentional about creating space and that sometimes our intentions of showing empathy and showing understanding can actually undermine creating these psychologically safe spaces for people to kind of share their lived-in experience. I hadn't really thought about that, frankly. That was certainly a major takeaway from the discussion. And, and I, you know, the one thing that I want to call out is that it is very understandable and frankly, I think natural to do that. You know, when we as human beings hear things, we're even if it's coming from an empathetic place, we're like looking to relate in some way. We want to, you know, because there's the old adage, place yourself in someone else's shoes. I think the easiest pathway to that for a lot of people is to think of some kind of anecdote or situation they've been in that feels adjacent. But to your point, what what is what that's doing is removing yourself subconsciously from from the situation at hand and like the experience of the person who has been aggressed toward or uh, is you know sharing their experience in some way. And it might be in the moment and it might be something that had happened previously, but you know to your point, what what's happening is you are removing that focus on the on the situation and then centering yourself or relating it to yourself. So I do want to get that out of the way that like I understand, that people do that. I do that. Um, it's just something that I think we need to think a little more intentionally and carefully about. And that actually reminds me of a line from a, uh, there's another podcast I listen to that talks about a lot of social issues. And one of the most, like the most pertinent things I took away from an episode was anytime you're having a conversation with someone, 
rather than thinking about the next thing that you want to say or how you can relate to it in some way, you should be thinking about why what this person is saying or, or like what is important to this person. Like when, when they're speaking to you and they're communicating something, why is this particular thing important to them? And then that's how you should then frame your response, uh, validating their experiences, uh, kind of amplifying their voice in this particular context, you know, like not relating it back to something that's about yourself. And that's another thing that's easier said than done again, because it's a very natural reaction to try to relate in some way, but it's not always about relatability. It's about empathy and, and understanding and validating someone's experience as it pertains to them. And, you know, I, I, I think, uh, the discussion that we had can, can serve that purpose pretty well, I think. I think one other really pertinent thing for me in the conversation is really thinking about how much we center expectations and the quote-unquote right way of doing things mm -hmm. around that which is upheld by the dominant culture. Yeah. And so just kind of shifting thinking when you see or hear something and you feel like, I don't know, that's not right. That's not appropriate. Having that check-in with yourself, is that because I am looking for kind of the, you know, again, the predominantly white experience and proximity to whiteness, is that my quote-unquote normal? And being aware of just how pervasive that is in everything. We've, we've talked about it in episodes from everything from how we expect people to speak, to dress codes in the workplace, to all sorts of things. And when you really start to think about that gut bias that this is not the way to do things and start to think about why that is, it's just really clear how strong this system is uh, in the U.S. and how much work we have to do in workplaces to really consider the impact of that. I love that you made that point because to me, that's really what so much of this boils down to is when the systems of, of privilege and beneficial structures and all of the things combined are threatened in some way. Uh, it can feel to those who hold the privilege and the power uh, like something's being taken from them. And so like, the, you know, that's where we see the visceral comments and, and the anger and things like that, whether they know it or not. And, you know, we've, we, I've had so many discussions about this over the last year that I can't remember whether I heard this on this podcast or in one of our GTI rides of old or something at some point in, in this uh, journey, I heard someone saying when privilege is beginning to be stripped away, it can feel like oppression, you know? And so then you mm -hmm. see all these things where people, you know, people kind of categorize more conservative types as like they, they want to be oppressed so badly. Um, you know, and, and I, I feel like that comment's usually made in jest in some way to kind of poke fun at the fact that like, you know, the, the, the the highest privileged class is screaming oppression <laughs> in some way, you know, uh, for various reasons. But I think that, um, maybe, maybe that your most recent point there is, is, is the most pertinent that having these discussions kind of forces a conversation and a thought process about one's place in the world and their, you know, contributions to it or participation in it. And as we've been talking about time and time again, it can feel really bad, I guess, to, to, to have it be insinuated that you take part in these structures that are damaging to other groups of people. And so, you think to yourself, well, that couldn't possibly be me. These people are soft or like, you know, these people are looking for a problem or maybe they think we're the ones that want to be oppressed so badly. And I think that uh, 
because we're talking about microaggressions, I know that like a lot of the time those things, they're called micro, but oftentimes they have macro implications. And I think, you know, it, it, it can be difficult for folks to understand how the aggregation of, of microaggressions can manifest into very significant power structures that disadvantage people and damage the way people see themselves too, you know, um, and, and what, what the possibilities are for their life. I don't know what else we got to talk about. Yeah. Solved it. Done. So earlier this year, Colin, you may remember a conversation we had with Wiley Davey and Yaro Fung Oliveris of Brave Dialogues. Yeah, it's been a minute, but I definitely remember them. That was a great conversation. It really was. But there was one part of our conversation that was super relevant to this week's show. To give you context, Wiley and Yaro teach classes and have a video series about how to have Brave Dialogues with friends family, or colleagues about topics that relate to the issues that equity-seeking groups face. In part of our conversation with them, I asked how a person can go about having a brave dialogue about microaggressions. Here was Yaro's answer. You know, a lot of folks refer to microaggressions as paper cuts, and that's a, a great metaphor for teaching. But in my experience, when I've experienced a microaggression, it feels more like a punch in the gut. And so it does have more of a lasting traumatic effect, not to be dramatic. I mean, I am a Sagittarius, but I I would say that that is the urgency, right, behind having these dialogues because you're carrying these these impacts without talking about them. And so my first gauge is, did it feel more like a paper cut and I can just let it go and it was no big deal? Or did it really feel like a punch in the gut and it's going to really impact the relationship that I have or need to have with this person, right? Somebody that I maybe work intimately with, like Wiley, or is it somebody that I see once a quarter in a, in a meeting, right? And so those factors will absolutely play play a part in the decision. I would say most of the time the decision is to at least give some voice to the experience because I strongly believe that in order to really own all of our voices, especially those of us who are underrepresented in some way as people of color, uh, black people, women, we have to be able to normalize and own our voice and our challenges and not sort of default to the the norms of of white fragility or anything like that so i know i'm a little bit more on the radical side because i do this work and and i do think that because i'm a i come in and i do this in in organizations as a guest i have a little more freedom than perhaps some folks who are you know working full-time there but i do think it's gonna start to shift when we all can talk about our own experiences if there's one thing we've learned from our discussion about microaggressions, that goes all the way back to the clip we played at the top of the show, is that many people who commit them are well-intentioned and may not even know they are committing a microaggression. Their intentions don't always match the impact of their words and their actions. Right. And the topic of intent versus impact is exactly what we're going to cover in our next episode, where we'll sit down with Wiley and Yaro to talk about how to have brave conversations and address these issues at work. We'll see you next time. This has been a production of Wistia Studios. The hosts are Jane Jackson and yours truly, Colin Denny. This episode was written and produced by Ron Dawson. It was edited by Adam Day and mixed by Maria Passingham of Edit Audio. Huge thanks to Tony Howard Lowe, Wiley Davey and Yaro Fong Olivares. Be sure to check the show notes for links to their various websites. If you like what we're doing on this show, please subscribe in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. We also appreciate if you'd leave us a rating and a review. Another great way you can support the show is by signing up for our email list at our website, wistia.com. Until next time, thanks so much for tuning in.